this week sees the launch of the 2016-17 season of concerts at St John Smith Square in London. That is quite a mouthful and one has to take it slowly in order to get the words out clearly. One doesn't want to make a mistake. Uh, St John Smith Square, if you're not aware already, is a concert venue, um, a Baroque church rebuilt in the 1960s after it was bombed in the 1940s during the Second World War. Uh, and uh, it's stone's throw from the Houses of Parliament. It is, if you get a bit of a wriggle on, it's about seven or eight minutes walk from Westminster Tube. If you want to have a bit of a stroll, then it's probably about 15 minutes. I'm embarrassed to say that I went to St John Smith Square for the first time last year. It was a press event. It was a, it was a press launch for last year's, or rather this year's, season of concerts. Uh, and it was then that I was introduced to a piece of music I'd never heard before. Uh, another series of variations for church organ based on the chimes of Big Ben. Absolutely fantastic. Totally ticks my boxes. Lots of bombast, lots of loud chords. I love a good chord, me, uh, and just it's just an incredibly joyous thing. And if you're if you're in a bit of a bad mood, or if you're a little bit tetchy, listen to that, and it will just it will just iron out all the stuff, deal with all of the negative stuff, and just leave you feeling like oh hooray, hooray for spring and for summer and for everything and for cool breezes and cold sparkling mineral water and ice cubes and all of that stuff it's it's lovely it's a lovely thing i can't explain it any other way but it is it's uh it's ridiculous it's an utterly ridiculous piece and it's and it's based on on quintessentially british sound i.e the sound of big ben's chimes and uh, and it's written by a frenchman (laughs) Which I think is is hilarious, uh, you know that that actually it requires a Frenchman to to take something really tra- straightforward and and possibly quite boring and turn it into something really interesting. Anyway, that's not really what this podcast is about. Um, there is there is something slightly unusual about this podcast because it is it features three contributors. So uh, there's Richard Heeson, who basically runs John Smith Square and is responsible for the season of concerts. Uh, Christine McMaster, who is a pianist, who is appearing in the season, and also conductor Stephen Layton, who is appearing in the season as well with the Orchestra of the Edge of Enlightenment and two singing groups called Polyphony and the Holst Singers. Um, I've lumped them all together in an unusual move um, because they all have interesting things to say. They all There is a common link between them, and that common link is that, for me... 
when I talk to people and when I hear what they have to say, and bear in mind that in editing a podcast together, I have to listen to to what those people have said in their interviews and then cut stuff together and then make sure that everything mixes okay. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's almost as though you, you really get an opportunity to hear exactly what it is they're saying. You get an opportunity to hear what it was that really inspired them, what it is that moves them, what it is that excites them. And, and inevitably, when they talk about music, I end up being exposed to more music that I wouldn't normally have listened to. So in this podcast, that means some music by Samuel Wesley, some music by Ruth Crawford Seeger, and uh, what was the other one? Oh yes, Bach Fantasia in C minor. They're all pieces that mean something to those individuals. And, and in that way, it's not that these individuals are promoting the season. It's just that, for me, these individuals are doing exactly what I'm trying to do with my friends, which is by merely mentioning these things, I'm going off and listening to them. And, and to me, that says to me, that is all we have to do. That is all we have to do in order to get people listening to it. Choose the wine, which is good. So, <laughs> okay, in the great. bar, great. So all the important jobs, all the important jobs, fall to you. Kind of, but you know, I also get to uh, to work on the beauty of the plumbing and uh, cleaning the steps and those sorts of things. Okay, I do so delegate not, that, not, but, uh, not just artistic development. Then, no, but no. A certain amount of logistics. And with a three hundred year old building, of course, uh, those are quite complex sometimes. Now, I'm uh, slightly confused about the building because when I came here last year, which is the first time, would you believe, in you know, in my adult life, that I've come to St John Smith Square. Um, it's an iconic name, but I wasn't I wasn't aware that actually it's had a bit of a checkered past. Yes, well, by the name St John Smith Square, you can uh, infer that we are or were a church. And indeed, we we were a church. We were built between seventeen fourteen and seventeen twenty eight as part of the Queen Anne Commission for the building of fifty new churches. In seventeen oh seven, there had been a violent storm in London that had destroyed many churches, and then in seventeen eleven. The Tories swept to power after a period of Whig dominance and felt that London had fallen into moral decrepitude. And so they set up this commission uh, for the building of 50 new churches to put the moral fibre back into London. Um, only 14 were actually completed, and uh, that we've got some very famous and worthy bedfellows, Christchurch Spitalfields, St George's Hanover Square, uh, St Paul's Deptford, St Anne's Limehouse. But we were the largest um, and the most grand of the scheme, the furthest west as well. Uh, we cost £40,000 to build, and we were designed by an architect called Thomas Archer. He's an interesting character because he didn't really... He didn't really need to earn too much money because he was controlling the Queen's gambling income in Newcastle. So he was creaming off the uh, the excise duties up there. So he was a bit of a lazy architect. He didn't do very much in his life. Uh, that's perhaps a bit unkind of me. Um, but he did do Birmingham Cathedral. He's known for that. And he did a lot of work on Chatsworth House. He wasn't the main architect. Um, but uh, Archer designed us. And uh, one of the things he did do, he went on the Grand Tour, as many people did at that time around Italy, was very inspired by uh, Italian architecture uh, at the time. And uh, consequently, we are quite atypical in London in that we're 
a Byzantine, South Italian-style, more Romanesque church. We don't have a central steeple or spire. We've got four towers at either corner, all the corners of the church, and a big open space in the middle. Uh, and the uh, apocryphal story goes that when Archer went to see Queen Anne and said, how would you like your church, ma'am? She was very ugly then. In fact, she died just six months later. And she suffered from gout. She was in a bit of a bad mood. And she kicked over her footstool and said, like that. And hence we've ever oh, since been known as Queen Anne's footstool uh, with the four towers right. at the corners. Okay. Whether that's a true story or not, I don't know. Oh, oh, uh, yeah, oh you had me going. But uh, anyway, in 1728, we were completed. But then in 1742, we burnt down um, and were rebuilt again. 1759, there was an earthquake, and we've had subsidence ever since, although I'm pleased to say it's settled, it's not moving anymore. Uh, we burnt down again in the early 19th century, and were rebuilt again. Struck by lightning, we were subject to a suffragette bomb, a bomb plot, although then, ironically, Emily Panko's funeral was here in 1928, so we obviously made up with them in some way. Uh, Benjamin Britten's parents were married here in 1901, right. yes, yes, yes. Um, and they lived here briefly, just, off, uh, just a few um, roads away but then in 1941 probably the most dramatic night in the church's history uh, which was May the 10th we were struck by two incendiary bombs during the Blitz and so the story goes it was the night that Parliament and Westminster Abbey were also targeted and Winston Churchill himself said let St John's burn and save Westminster Abbey is that true or is that a I have this idea that who knows a exactly another tale but it's a nice one so the thing that I was surprised about uh, well no there are two things I was surprised about number one was I didn't realise it was quite as chequered as that <laughs> um, but wow you're almost like the church that won't go away yes. Um that actually there was it was down to one person who was really keen for the building to be rebuilt and for it to be an arts fit. Yes, Is that right? well, yes. I mean, there were various plans after 1941, and through the 40s, after the war years, and through the 1950s, the building lay derelict. There was one plan to turn it into the church archive. Uh, and build a site. There was another plan in the late 50s to turn it into a huge art centre with a concert hall, a recital hall, an art gallery, an underground car park. How they'd have fitted it all into Smith Square, I don't know. And at that stage, there was a proposal for Picasso to paint the ceiling. And we'd have been the 20th century Sistine wow. Chapel if that had happened. Wow. As it happened, he never came to London again, and that plan didn't happen. But then in the 1960s, um, things had died down, and there was a proposal to demolish the, the what was left of the church and flatten it and turn it into a car park. Um, and a local resident, an American wealthy heiress, Lady Parker of Waddington, who was married to the then Lord Chief Justice, um, thought, well, this isn't really what we want. And so coalesced local opinion, local people, raised a million pounds and bought the freehold of the church, uh, commissioned an architect called Marshall Sisson to re-imagine uh, Thomas Archer's original plan and rebuild us in his original design as an art centre. And we opened in October 1969 with a concert by uh, Dame Joan Sutherland. Uh, well, she wasn't Dame then, but Joan Sutherland and Richard Bonning, uh, who also came and gave our 20th anniversary concert in 1989. We've been a concert hall ever since, 46 years. So, so between 90, effect, effectively between 1941 and 19... 28 years, we were it was, de it was derelict. derelict and then being rebuilt at the end. Wow, because it's um, a big site in the centre of a you know, yeah, some quite well-to-do property. Uh, of course, much of London 
was in that way after the Blitz. Uh, yeah, you know, and it took, it took the 1950s, I think, when you look at photos uh, of London, there were so many places that were still derelict and still being rebuilt. And we were perhaps one of the later sites to be redeveloped, which is surprising given our proximity to Parliament and so on. But uh, it, there was a big debate. Should they rebuild the churches or should they build a new building here? Um, thankfully, they restored the original. So down to one woman... Well, one woman with who with then vision. coalesced a lot of local support behind her. Uh, one of the interesting things that people don't realise is we are still a consecrated church. Um, we lost our parish when we were devastated in the Blitz, um, and we now fall under the parish of St Stephen's Rochester Row. So the parish is the parish of St Stephen with St John, and we still hold three services a year, uh, which are full-sung Eucharist with a choir that we do on, on Tuesday lunchtimes, um, and those were brought into being by the local parish priest in the 1980s, who was one Richard Charteris, who's now the Bishop of London, of course. Um, so we, we do these three services a year where we get out the altar, we get out sacristy and the, the cross, and we, we have ma- uh, the, the, the communion for people who want it. And then at two o'clock we put it all away again and become a concert hall. You talk, I notice when you talk about it, you talk about we, which makes me assume that you regard this as a family Am I making an assumption there, or is that a deliberate...? No, I think it very much is a family. There's no way that I could deliver this. Um, but uh, even when you talk about the church, you yes. know, the, the bit that it's almost as the, the building is a, is a person, a, a member of the team as well. There's Am a I huge, too much into No, it? there's a huge personality in this, in this building, in this concert hall, and in this location. Uh, we're situated in the middle of a leafy Georgian square in, in central London, um, and we have, we're surrounded by history... Dickens wrote about the church as a great monster with its legs in the air. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned some of the stories of the past, and um, since we became a concert hall, uh, since the church became a concert hall, um, I'm, I'm obviously wedded to it. There's so many stories, you know, in the 70s and 80s of, of, of uh, Daniel Barrymore and Jackie Dupre, uh, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, Boulez, or Abado recording here. So many what huge do you think, figures. Um, what do you think brought them here? I mean, at that stage, there was the Barbican, the Albert Hall. OK, acoustically, the Albert Hall might be slightly odd. but Barbican wasn't here till the mid-'80s, don't forget. 82, uh, OK. Uh, Festival Hall. Festival Hall. I mean, there were quite a lot of concert venues. Quite a lot. There are a handful. Yeah. What brought them to St John Smith's Square? Well, there, there, were, there certainly weren't as many concert venues as there are today. Um, the South Bank complex was there. Not every building was there, but most of them were. The Albert Hall was there and the Wigmore Hall were there. Um, but other than that, that was about it in the London scene. Uh, as I say, we started up in 1969 and we're renowned for our acoustics. Very quickly, Decker and EMI both got involved in recordings here and we have Decker to thank for the um, uh, double glazing in the hall. They they provided that for acoustic purposes. Um, but the the actual acoustic in the hall is pretty much second to none for things like Baroque and early classical music. Um, the Mendelssohn symphonies, which the LSO recorded here, Claudio Bardo in the late, uh, late 1970s, early 80s, are renowned for being probably the best recordings of those pieces.
there is also something about the name. I mean, the name comes first. I'm, yeah. A, you know, as, a, as a teenager, I was aware of the name. Yes, absolutely. The of, of St John Smith Square. Yes. I mean, you know, that is an iconic name. Yes. What are the, what do you think are the challenges from your perspective of getting new people to enjoy classical music? Does that mean bringing them into the concert hall? Does it mean exposing them to it in a different location? What? Well, um, I'm having spent the first. 10 or 15 years of my career working in outreach and education work. I'm a passionate believer in bringing creativity and music making to everybody and that everybody, virtually everybody, can participate and enjoy music as part of their lives and it can be a meaningful part of people's lives. What I don't want to do uh, is do some kind of facile project where you, you, you parachute something onto to somebody for whom it has no relevance or, or, or meaning whatsoever. I'm not a believer in that. And I do think that I do think that classical music audiences are still strong and still continuing and there's no decline. Uh, they are being replaced mm. as people you know are no longer with us. New people find roots into it. It may be through different ways these days. It might be you know through using new technologies. It might be through um, some of the schemes that some of the orchestras like the OAE's Nightwork Scheme or the Cafe Otto or things like this. But it may be through some other means. It might be through a traditional sort of way they get taken along to a concert by somebody else who happens to like going and they enjoy the experience and they come again. So there are lots of ways of bringing people to, to, con to the concert experience and the music experience. And it might be that we go out and do a workshop somewhere. It might be that we invite people in on a discount for some reason. We target a certain group. It might be that we encourage people to bring a friend for the first time, um, give them a drink or something. But frankly, it, it, it's such a wonderful experience once people do come that, that once you've captured them, then they're there for life, really. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also interested in... Uh, I heard you say that, you know, we're not publicly funded, we're a commercial operation. Hmm. I think that's what you said. Um, yeah, I probably should be cut slightly careful that we are a registered charity. So when I say commercial, we're not for profit. No, but I can't, don't receive public funding. We don't receive public subsidy. What, what are the advantages of not receiving public funding? The advantages are that you, you're not beholden to any one political agenda at any one time. And some places and some organisations... Certainly not all, um, but some can sometimes seem to be creating product simply to tick the box of the funding structure and politics changes. I've been through a, different arts strategies and policies in my time. I've worked for publicly funded organisations and I've worked for you know, ones that aren't. Um, you don't... Uh, the danger is that you can be bound up in box ticking and forget the reason... You know, why you're there, what your unique selling points are, mm. what you're best at, and you end up creating stuff simply because you can, it, it justifies your position. Um, so, so, there, so there's that. Um, I also do believe that sometimes, not always, sometimes public subsidy can lead to a certain complacency and you can end up perhaps not always challenging what you're doing in in enough because it, it's healthy to be challenged and to think about what's the best way to do something, um, what's the effective way to do something. Um, but 
I also am a firm believer in, in, in the arts being part of what we value and pay for in society. Um, and, you know, I do think that the arts credit should be quadrupled at least and invested in an education. Art, the arts should be central to, to the core of education. I always used to say that the national curriculum should be music and cookery. That's all, because uh, music brings every subject together and you need cookery to live. Um, <laughs> but that's it. Does, does that mean that you had cookery when... Uh, I do remember having cookery, actually, yeah. I grew up in West Cornwall, and I can remember we, we learned to make pasties and rock so, cakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, where do you think art strategy is at the moment, then? If it's not central to the national curriculum, is it is it far away from it? Is it sort of near? Is it knocking on the door? Is it... Well, it's, I think. Are we nearly uh, there? Okay, we're getting political now. I mean, it's absolutely a, a crime that, that that the arts are being excluded from the EBAC and from from what government are thinking at the moment is. And I sincerely hope that there's a that there's a rethink and a, a realization that the arts and creative thinking are what make people uh, able to 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 move forward in society and 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 create businesses, create wealth, create opportunity. Um, that's all, all together. Uh, we have a danger at the moment, I think, of heading into a position where we're far too vocational in our outlook uh, with education and people are not given the opportunity through music schemes being haphazard, to say the most, around the country. When I grew up, I got entirely free tuition on the instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, my I came from a very, very normal. I'm not saying I came from a poor background, but I didn't come from a privileged background, and it, it's unlikely that um, uh, that it would have been conceived of to buy, uh, you know, an, an expensive intru- instrument and let me have lessons in that way because it, it wasn't part of the mindset. Uh, it is now, I'm pleased to say, in the family. But uh, without that access through the county music service uh, at my time and going to county bands and orchestras and so on I wouldn't I think have had the opportunity to then go on and get into you know, higher education which I got a full maintenance grant for as well and was free at point of access and then go on to where I am today so I recognize that there's a real a real worry that uh, that we could be uh, cutting people out and cut off from the opportunity that uh, that I enjoyed and experienced and that my, my colleagues did and, and peers and so on. I didn't intend for us to get political, and I promise we won't. Uh, not sorry. anymore. Uh, <laughs> but I wonder whether if it's not central to a generation's experience, let's put it like that, in the same mm. way that I, th- I think we, yeah. we experience in the same way yeah. in County Music Service, yeah. uh, which, like you, I was yeah. completely empowered by. Um, <clears throat> what do you think... The current generation is missing out, or will miss out on. Are they unsalvageable? Will they? Will they just dis- the, disconnected from classical music? Well, I hope they won't be disconnected because I think I still have, believe that music has the power to engage people at all kinds of levels and all different levels. My worry, though, is that we are going to have a generation of people who, who just don't have that experience of creative play, creative experience together, I and mean, going along to do you know, youth orchestra courses at the weekend. It was so formative in my experience. And when I when I used to go back to school, you know, the following Monday morning, I'd realised, you know, what a wonderful time I'd had compared to some of my colleagues who weren't musicians. I recognise what Richard is saying. Uh, I was um, a county youth orchestra boy. I played clarinet in the Suffolk Youth Orchestra. And then when I didn't do that very well, 
Um, I ended up playing percussion for a few years and then after a while I sort of stamped my foot a bit and said I want another audition please and then I ended up playing clarinet again it was great Uh, I like Richard have a lot of love for County Youth Orchestra and and agree with him that it is it is through participation that truly transformational experiences can be had Christine McMaster who is appearing in the in St John Smith Square season, uh, has a different experience. She is a pianist. It is a, to my mind, it is a slightly lonelier experience in that there aren't quite so many opportunities for a pianist to play in an orchestra, for example, unless they're the soloist uh, or unless that orchestra is playing a lot of um, 20th century music where a, a piano is required. Um, there will inevitably be lots of people going, oh, no, you're wrong about that, but yeah, just bear with me. That That's the sort of broad brushstroke point. Um, Christina surprised me by telling me that she'd actually spent her teenage years um, as a gymnast but she had some interesting things to say about what it's like being a pianist and then she also managed spectacularly well to hook me in to listening to a composer's music that I had never ever heard before I think being a pianist, you've got to have some kind of sense of kind of slightly getting away from just reality. There is, you've got to be completely realistic as well. I think it's quite enjoyable to be slightly head in the clouds type of thing because that could make you push yourself harder and and just go with big crazy ideas because sometimes they work out. So you're saying that that it's it's quite valuable to be able to be different. Is that what you're so, saying? Yeah. I've summarised that in a very crude way. But <laughs> is that... I think it's fine. I think, yeah, I'm, personally, I think to be a pianist, you have to be your, any kind of musician or conductor. And, or, well, lots of jobs. You have to be ambitious. And if you're always just thinking about reality, reality can be quite sort of negative <laughs> sometimes. So reality, you reality dip your is toe hell. in there. Yeah. Reality is absolute <laughs> hell. That's why I say it's So is it escape then? Is musical performance for you escape? Or is it uh, aspiration? Is it, you know, the best that you can possibly do? Yeah, well, I mean, I think performing is... That's the moment, you know, that's what you work for the whole time. The rest of it is it's a lot of hard work. And actually, it, it can feel, you know, it's, it's tough sometimes, uh, you know, practising if something's not going right. But for me, the moment, the best moment is the performance. And then also just a short time after that. <laughs> so, a short time? Yeah, a short time. And then okay. thinking about the next thing. Or, okay, or, yeah. how short is the short time well, after? <laughs> Well, you know, at least until the end of that evening. Oh, right, you allow yourself to get off the platform. Yeah. And, um, you're fine, OK. Um, you're doing a concert in John Smith Square featuring some Debussy. That's right, yeah. some Ruth Crawford Seeger. Right. Yes. Can you tell me about... Can you tell me about the Ruth Crawford Seeger? Because there, therein is uh, some music that I don't know and okay. a slightly sort of... Um, well, I recognise the composer, but I'm slightly scared by the composer. Okay. So I don't know anything about her music. Can uh-huh. you tell me about her music? Uh, why are you scared by her? Just because... <laughs> this is going to sound quite weird, mm. but it's a double-barrelled surname. Okay, uh, so you don't a like a double... sort of... No, it's not that I don't like double, double-barrelled surname, <laughs> but more that there's a sort of certain weight of expectation ah. with what sounds like a very serious... 
composer and because it's unknown um, it's a bit like it's a bit like Zimanowski. Okay. So I don't know very much Zimanowski. Uh, I when I first saw the name Zimanowski, I was like, oh my god, that sounds quite scary. <laughs> um, and and I think that there's something the name. in right. in composers' names that makes me, makes me wonder whether other people react in the same way. So I'm asking you therefore to describe yeah. it to see whether it. You well, know. just so you know, and don't feel too terrified, some people do just call her Crawford, Ruth Crawford. Right, oh, right OK, right. So her husband was um, Pete... No, her son was Pete Seeger, a uh, folk singer. Um, and um, I'm just trying to remember her husband's name, Mr Seeger. Anyway, let's call him Mr Seeger. Let's call him Mr Seeger for now. <laughs> I can't remember his name, but he was, um, he was also a composer. And, um, you know, they were two composers working at the beginning of the 20th century, American. Really interesting life, actually, fascinating pianist. But she... And actually, there's a poem that she wrote when she was 13, which pretty much predicts her whole life and her musical career. It's called Fireside Fancies. And the beginning, it's... She sort of says about exploring different hopes and options of a career. She was talking about could she be an opera singer on the stage and she realised no that's not quite for me, that's not her temperament and actually um, and then she decided she saw herself as a composer but then in the sort of middle of this poem she talks about having children, at age 13 she talks about having children and it was interesting because her children actually had a big impact on, on her and also her writing. So she had this middle period, we sort of go back to the beginning period, she was really exploring this sort of new sound world. Um, not for her music, was very influenced by Scriabin, but she was also working with this new set of American composers like Charles Ives, Henry Cowell, um, and, and then in the middle period she turned very much to folk songs and folk music. And so interesting that she wrote all these songs about animals, and it's, it's, it's great stuff, but so different from what she was sort of set out to do. And it was almost kind of unfinished business from the beginning. And, uh, and then in the middle, she had all this folk music, which obviously had a big impact on her son, eventually Pete Seeger as well. Was. And, and, then, and then coming back round, then she sort of returned in her later period, she went back after her children had grown up, back to doing what she uh, had intended to do. So it was the beginning of the 20th century, so, you know, even then, sort of... She was writing at the beginning. Yes, yeah. So, and the pieces that I played before and that I'll play again is the, the St. John's Square, the, uh, the Prelude, which is a really rich, sort of, and dark sort of sonority, but beautiful, and quite succinct in, in ways.
Stephen Layton, who you're going to hear from next, is uh, another example of of one of the joys of making these podcasts in that uh, I get to talk to lots of people in a short space of time uh, and get them to emote about the thing that they love. And when you start doing that with lots of different people, you start to you start to get to know people in a in quite a strange way. It's not that I know him um, in any way, and I'm not claiming that I know him in any way. But actually, in moments like interviews, you get to you get to hear insights from people that perhaps in everyday conversation you would never get. And so they are very special experiences. They are. It is perhaps, in a way, a bit of a privilege to to interview people. And when Stephen talks about the music that he was first introduced to as a choir boy, um, I was completely blown away by that by that insight. I feel through my own education, upbringing, training which started, obviously, like for all of us, at a very young age, but for me, specifically as a cathedral choir boy, singing music every day from the age of eight or nine. But what that gave me in my life is something that I want to see shared with other children of the next generation. Not just the music that I had, but perhaps what that represented, the opportunity and the chances that it gave me because I had those chances when I was so young. And I believe music is a great enabler for all people on this earth. And so I want to see that as something shared at the earliest stage. It sounds as though uh, music had, your first exposure to classical music was, was transformative. But can you, t- can you tell me about that moment? Yeah. Yeah. Singing and music absolutely transformed my life and existence and uh, I, I, I remember the early days of being a choir boy I remember the first day of being a choir boy of sitting next to other choristers at 8 o'clock in the morning just having had my toast for breakfast and going into this practice room and suddenly hearing a piece of music sung I remember what it was it was a scribe unto the Lord by Samuel Sebastian Wesley outside church choral music but nevertheless something that was very stirring and the first words that the boys sang were let the whole earth stand in awe of him can remember now that sensation of hearing that sound around me those words and at that precise moment something happened in me which I was aware of at the time 
and I'm even more aware of it, of course, now as an older person because I can look back to that moment and think that's kind of when something happened. If you like, in simple terms, I felt the, the goosebumps that we feel in life or what, whatever those things are, but I sure felt it that morning in a way that I've rarely ever felt in my life since. It seemed sort of emphatic and certain and in no way. Uh, and I wonder whether clearly you, you, your belief is very important to you. Mm. Is it tied up in your belief, in your faith? Is that musical appreciation, that, that moment, is it tied up in your faith? Yes. I think at the time of having that revelatory moment as a young child, I didn't realise it was tied up in a faith. Um, I was perhaps a bit too young perhaps to quite grasp that but increasingly as I uh, went through school and college I realised the whole significance to me of the music that I was singing particularly the ancient music of Talis and Bird which had come out of the ancient buildings Winchester Cathedral was where I started uh, and later I made that sort of music in other great buildings like King's College Chapel in Cambridge as a student and I realised the significance of architecture and music and to me there was a common denominator to this which was if you like the spirit the faith, the geist, whatever you want to call it Uh, and from my upbringing uh, it was that Christian spirit and I have found throughout always when I've worked on uh, music with these great texts that I cannot be separated from what I see as the truths of the texts which are being sung through the music. When, at what point then did, did that experience turn into something that you wanted to do professionally? I mean, was there a key moment or, or was it just like a natural progression? Um, I think it. Uh, I, I knew when I was a choir boy that I wanted to play the organ, and indeed I started having organ lessons on the organ of Winchester Cathedral when I was about twelve and a half, um, in my final year as a choir boy. And my organ teacher at that time was James Lancelot, who's the organist of Durham Cathedral today, and he had been the organ scholar of King's College, Cambridge. And he inspired me. Sorry. Yeah, he inspired me um, because of his example. Um, he was, t- to my ears at that time and, t- and today, as I know, uh, a, a marvellous uh, player of the organ. But he was also a quiet and kind sort of presence to me as a boy. And I suppose I just thought, I wish I could be as good as him one day. And in fact, as an organist, I I never was or never will be. But um, I, I guess that example fired me up. And I suppose that's why now I see it is so important working with young people that we never realize at the time perhaps quite how significant something we do or say can be to those around us and um, 
just thinking about that moment with organ lessons with him, I think that was a defining moment. Sometime in Winchester Cathedral, I can just see now, uh, on a morning, practicing the organ quietly uh, before a service and then being allowed to play the Fantasia in C minor of Bach after this service when I was 12 and a half. I think I knew after that that somehow I wanted to be a musician. How in your in your day-to-day work now, how how do you take that that vision that you have about inspiring young people? How do you how do you pass that on now? Wherever one is working, whether it be with professional orchestra and choir like OAE and Polyphony on the stage at St John Smith Square, or whether it be with the students in Cambridge in Trinity Chapel, or indeed very much whether it be working in, in foreign places where I often go, because it's obviously always more challenging uh, to be a visiting conductor in a foreign country with a new group. But I always try to keep at the front of my mind several questions which I need to answer, which um, are these... What is it that the people in front of me need most from me? And then the second thing is, I just always say to myself, through thick and thin, I'm here because I love music. And I find if those two questions are dealt with, one can get through most things in my working life. been listening to a thoroughly good podcast produced by me john jacob get in contact by tweeting me at thoroughly good or send me an email to thoroughly good at gmail.com